Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Rusha Modi is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, gastroenterology, and hepatology. In this episode, we talk about what clinicians can bring to healthcare startups, the future of AI in healthcare, how clinicians can get involved in digital health, and what is health equity. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, Rusha, how are you doing? I'm doing good. So excited to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man, I am so excited. So I did Rusha's podcast, I think, what is it, a couple of weeks ago? And I had such an amazing time just talking to him, talking to you. So I was like, man, I need to get him on my podcast because you're the exact person. You're the exact kind of people that I like to talk to. Oh, I, I take that, you know, as a major compliment. You you really have, uh, you know, had a, a train of thought that's very similar to mine. And uh, your your podcast and your newsletter and Twitter feed are, are fantastic. So very insightful. So uh, I take that very highly. I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. But for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Rusha Modi. I'm a physician, a digital health expert, and also a public policy, public health researcher. So I'm a, I'm a gastroenterologist by training. So I, I deal with digestive diseases, and I, I still see patients. So that's a wonderful part of my career. And I was uh, in academics for most of my career. Uh, I, I actually left academics after almost five years of a faculty position to pursue, you know, more community-based care, uh, but also to work more with digital health companies. Uh, you know, I've been in part for many years in two research labs. One's focused on quality improvement and healthcare delivery science, like how do we give the right care to the right patient at the right time? And then, and then digital health are sort of shared interests, which is like how do we use technology to sort of really achieve the first aim of the first lab, which is improve you know, patient outcomes through improved patient care sort of pathways and enabled by technology. And I found that, you know, those kind of interests kind of merged together. Um, and that was really a fascinating point for me. So now I work with digital health companies that are interested in sort of making sure there's a clinical insight to the offerings that they have. And so I helped develop clinical roadmap and some business strategy for them. So I'm working with some startups right now. Uh, I've uh, in the past done some sort of seed investing in some companies. Nothing, nothing's come across my plate just yet. So I'm really excited about the future, and that's kind of what I've been doing right now. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's it's great that you're getting in and helping digital health companies. So have a lot of those been them reaching out to you, or are you reaching out to them, or kind of a mix of both? A uh, mix, mix of both. I, I end up being on a, a number of med tech panels, you know, guest speaking or moderating, and so got exposed to a lot of companies and you know as you know oftentimes it's the meeting after those meetings at conferences you know or in between sessions that stuff really happens and so that was where I got introduced to a lot of companies um I'm here in Los Angeles so there's a lot of sort of Silicon Beach type um events and there's a lot of you know there's a beehive here not nearly as big as in you know you know Silicon Valley or other areas of the country but it's definitely growing and so that as an area to sort of connect with people. And then, yeah, a number of them have actually reached out to me. So it ends up being sort of a mutual, mutual way of working. That's awesome. So, so you said you work a lot with the strategy part of it, right? The strategy piece, and I'm assuming clinical workflows and such. What kind of, I'm sure that you see like a common theme with all these startups, like, uh, like, you know, good things and bad things. Like what, what is something that a clinician can bring right away to a startup? I think that startups and really a lot of companies in digital health have this kind of what I call white paper mentality, which is, or, or like whiteboard mentality, which is like, let's get some smart people together and let's just, you know, create a one page plan. This is what we're doing. And I mean, I'll give you an example, a very excellent company uh, that shall remain nameless. You know, there was a startup reach out to me probably six, seven months ago. 
they wanted my input on a, a new software program for radiologists. You know, and for those that don't know, those are physicians that read x-rays and CTs, et cetera, for, for largely diagnostic purposes. And he's like, this is going to be kind of like similar to Instagram, but it's for radiologists. It's going to streamline data sharing. We can do all this stuff with image work. And for those that don't know, image processing and radiology and sharing of images, very cumbersome. If you yourself have had any images and you've tried to get the data and the reports sent to your doctor or your, your care team, not easy. So on paper, it's a great idea. On the white paper, this makes sense. It is a legitimate problem. It is absolutely low-hanging fruit to solve. Your solution, this company's solution, definitely is a major improvement in this area. And so this guy's like, well, what do you think? I'm like, this totally makes sense on paper. But healthcare is not nearly as dysfunctional as it is if, if simple things like this were the clear solution to these problems. So what I bring first and foremost is a deep understanding of the clinical realities. And the clinical realities are that we have conflicting incentives, right? Healthcare is not broken in America. It is perfectly designed to achieve the results it's currently achieving. And it's just that these results are not in line with what many of us are looking for. There are conflicting incentives and incentives that drive behavior. So the first thing I tell you is that like a good idea is where you start in digital health. It is not where you end. You actually need to work with clinicians, shadow them, talk to them, see what is the life of a radiologist. And you start realizing that most clinicians or pharmacists or what have you have to surmount an innumerable number of just illogical and frankly, sometimes unfair and overly burdensome obstacles just to do their job. You know, it's like you take, Ferraris and you put them in neutral, then you expect them to run a race. Like this just doesn't make any sense. It's sort of a small miracle that you don't have more inefficiency than you already do when it comes to picking up meds or getting a study done or, or what have you. And so I think there's this idea from Silicon Valley types that doctors and healthcare people don't get it. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. We're the disruptors in America. We take technology and fix things and make it better and create whole new industries. And we can drop in and help these guys, these well-intentioned but idiots, you know, fix this system that they obviously can't handle. And I tell them that that is a fairly naive way of thinking about it. You have to have an appreciation of why that system is the way it is before you institute sort of technology. So simply having a great idea in a white paper is not enough. And then the second thing I tell them is that, you know, technology, in my opinion, functions as an accelerator or a magnifier. So you put technology into a broken or an inefficient system, not broken, because as I mentioned, maybe it's, it's perfectly designed to do what it's currently doing. It magnifies that inefficiency. If you put technology into a system that is working well with good social structure and incentives, it will magnify that. So healthcare, depending on who you ask, is the perfect dysfunctional system that has conflicting goals that we, I think, all agree are in need of reevaluation. And that's what's largely happened until recently with technologies that has accelerated and magnified those inefficiencies and dysfunctions. So the classic example is in 2009 with Obama and the, Obamacare and the, the High Tech Act. Uh, mandated and had federal subsidies for the institution of electronic medical records and all the hardware and software that would be needed to retrofit a largely paper-based industry, you know? Um, and I, I still remember when I was an intern in medicine, which wasn't that long ago, you know, a lot of my notes were handwritten. A lot of the orders were handwritten for like complex chemotherapeutic care, which I know is, yeah, I, mean, I remember doing chemo wards Inpatient, you have people who've got all kinds of lymphoma and chemias, and I'm literally handwriting out, you know, like the satinib and all this stuff. Like, this is clearly right for, I mean, obviously there was, you know, people checking and stuff, but this is the level. And so, you know, I think that people didn't realize, though, that EMRs now are a leading cause of physician burnout. It's actually dramatically increased administrative burden, burnout, decreased contact time directly with the patients they want to serve. So when you next see a you know, clinical healthcare worker of any kind and they're just click clacking away on a laptop or a desktop, 
that's the reason. But the thinking at the time was, well, computers have revolutionized everything else. Like the last handout is healthcare. And it was an intention notion, but it was written by people that were white paper people. They had not actually really worked in these settings for any length of time. And so when they tried to bring technology in, it just magnified the the dysfunction as opposed to fixing it. Yeah, I mean, you've touched on a lot there. I. I, I I love the fact that you said that the healthcare system is working exactly the way it's supposed to work. And I agree with you. And I tell people all the time that the system is meant to, it's, it stops us every time we get to it. Like the, for, for a clinician, the system is broken. And the fact that we have any victories and the, the amount of victories that we have in the system is a testament to all the people that work in healthcare. And just getting one simple thing done requires us to move mountains. So imagine like, you know, having to drink some water, but having to like climb a mountain up, up to the spring, grab it, come back down, you know, yeah. then drink. That's what working in healthcare feels like just doing a standard everyday thing. And I also love the fact that you brought up the magnifying inefficiencies thing. And that's one thing that I'm kind of not, I shouldn't say scared, but it's one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize with AI and all these things coming about is we can't just throw AI at healthcare, right? We need to be very thoughtful and diligent about what it's doing, what data it's using, because, you know, everyone talks about health equity, social determinants of health, all that stuff. Right now, there is, people can argue it or not, but there is some sort of biases that exist in healthcare to certain groups or whatever, right? But if we, right now we're looking at those biases, we're seeing them, we're physically seeing all these things happening. But if we put AI on top of those biases, those biases are going to be magnified by millions and billions. And you're going to, we're going to do more harm than good. Right. And that kind of brings me. And then, yeah. And the other point you said with um, like that white paper mentality, like not understanding, like a lot of people don't understand, like there's the written workflow of healthcare and then there's the actual workflow of healthcare. And when I talk to, when I talk to healthcare companies myself and I tell them like, Hey, again, same thing. I love this idea. It would be amazing if this is how it actually worked. Right. You know, like the way it actually happens is this. And you're going to continue having this problem because you haven't fixed all the things in front of this specific problem. I 100% agree. I mean, I think that people though seem to realize, though, that I think with AI, for example, a couple of points there, like I, I think ChatGPT is amazing. I think that it eventually is going to be, and eventually is going to come real soon uh, because the rate of growth of this thing is unheard of. It's going to be you know, if used effectively, which is the point you're making, very useful. I think the problem is twofold. Number one is all these LLMs, like language learning models, no one, even most computer scientists, let alone people like you or me or the, or the general public, no one knows how they actually learn this stuff, right? For those that don't know, the part of the reason these technologies are popular, powerful, they kind of, they're autodidactic, like they teach themselves. So number one is no one really knows how they do that. Even if you talk to some of the engineers that created it, they don't quite know. Um, and the corollary there is like, you know, there are many a time where a physician will prescribe a medicine. We know it works from the data. We know it's safe. We don't quite know how it works. That's not uncommon. But the thing is, we don't know what data sets they were trained on. And when notably Kevin Roos of the New York Times recently did a two-hour interview with Bing's AI called, I think, Bard. No, that's Google's. I don't know what the thing uses uh, open AI, open AI. Yeah, uh, that's right. The whole interview, which was transcribed, the, the AI goes nuts and it becomes, you know, violent and falls in love with the author says that you're not in love with your wife. And I mean, really crazy things like what was the data set that led to that? I mean, it's clearly scraping something from the internet or, or whatnot. So I feel like, um, these are the things that people need to look at before we become super enthusiastic about it. The last thing I'll point is like, well, who's opening or who's owning these technologies, right? Open AI, as Elon Musk pointed out on Twitter, was supposed to be that, open AI. That was what he founded, or not founded, but initially supported. Now Microsoft has a $10 billion position in that company and Google has their own AI, and I'm sure soon it'll be standard technology across most companies. Well, AI used at the benefit of like a corporate behemoth, very different than one that's functioning like a, you know, the next version of sort of a 
democratic tool that we can all use for for public good. And I feel like there will come a point very soon that we will have the AI version of come to Jesus moment relative to what we've done with smartphones and social media, where, you know, we've now realized very quickly, oh, social media is probably terrible for the mental health, especially of young people. And general use of smartphones in excess, what does that mean is obviously in debate, could be bad for your mental and physical health, could be bad for democracy, right? This is largely what happened, and that was not the thought. I mean, Twitter came out, we thought Arab Spring, Twitter's this pro-democratic force, we know technology is a lot more complicated. So I agree with you that tremendous potential, tremendous possibility, but, you know, I think we have to be a little bit cautious about who will own it and how it'll actually be implemented. Yeah, I mean, right now, AI is a black box. People don't really understand. Like, I've talked to a bunch of people that are way, way smarter than me, built AI models themselves, and they themselves will say, we don't know how it's working. And, you know, the ones that are, the ones that admit that out loud are cognizant of the fact that, hey, we need to be careful about this. And we need to be, but like the people that have no background in it, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to replace clinicians. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. I'm like, yo, hold your horses, man. Like, you're not going to do that anytime soon. Like even the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman said, we are quite a way to, quite a ways away from sentient AI, meaning AI that can learn yeah. and think for itself. Like we are away, way far away. And Healthcare requires some sort of empathy, some sort of human connection that you you cannot you cannot get rid of that. You're not going to have a healthcare system that is just robotic and moves people through. I mean, people are going to try. I know it's going to happen. People are going to try. People are going to replace try to replace clinicians, pharmacists, nursing staff, whatever, with AI, and it's going to fail miserably. But they're never going to admit it, and they're going to keep pushing forward. And that's the problem because these people don't understand the technology, and that's why I push for clinicians to you know like kind of what you're doing work with these companies, even if you don't agree with them, whatever, try to direct them in a way where it will be helpful. We don't want another EHR thing happening. The EHR experiment kind of, it's failed, right? Because, but we were never involved in it. We just, we just were told, Hey, you got to use this. We cannot do that with AI because that will become catastrophic for everyone involved. I, I agree. And I feel like it's a matter of, of leverage. You have positions that were not leveraged enough they didn't really have a stake in this and they didn't have a seat in the table so we were on the receiving end of change and you know by physicians i mean all clinicians as opposed to driving change so that that's i think you know we're talking about healthcare we're talking about you know what i kind of call like the great switcheroo of medical training you know when you're in medical training or clinical training i'm sure your attendings are like this i mean you get you know this is sort of a slightly derogatory term, but you get pimped regularly, which basically means you get interrogated by, you know, your seniors in a sort of apparently Socratic fashion, you know, in order to test how much you know and to teach you clinical knowledge. And that's the boilerplate advice you get on every feedback session, which is increase your fund of knowledge, read more, do, which is always great advice. Who's going to, who's going to tell a clinician, no, you've learned everything that there's no more to learn. Like that's the, a ludicrous proposition. The problem is that I think it creates this impression for clinicians once they, you know, go into the real world, unquote, that knowledge itself is power. It's not. It's applied knowledge is power. And that application is not determined by physician. The organizational environment in which we operate as pharmacists and nurses and you know healthcare workers is as important, if not more important. So if Clinicians came in like, hey, we have all this knowledge. We've studied for all these years. We've taken on massive debt. We should have the keys to the kingdom and let us run things. Oh, no. Most healthcare administrators in that field has increased, I think, by 32,000% in the last, like, 20 years. Most of them are not clinicians, and they're now dictating to us, this is how you're going to chart. We don't really care if you chart. That liability is on you. We just we need to get the codes because the codes are what matter because the codes bring in the money. You know, I'm referring to ICD-10 codes and, and CPT codes, things that, you know, are the kind of backbone matrix-like coding uh, that really runs healthcare. So I feel like we need leverage, but in America, leverage really comes in only a handful of formats. And, you know, we were talking before the show of kind of some 
entrepreneurs and business people that are in this space. Well, one is sort of Naval Ravikant, who, you know, he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. I love his content. He's an angel investor and created AngelList. Uh, and he has a fantastic series of leverage points. But, you know, a lot of the old school forms of leverage, physicians don't have capital. We don't have that much relative to like a big pharmaceutical. You know, our numbers are a lot smaller than the healthcare administration workforce. Same with pharmacists. And we don't have position. We're not typically considered leaders. We're considered really, really intelligent worker bees, right? So when you have Vinod Kosla a few years back saying 80% of what a physician does will be replaced by technology, and then there's this public outcry, and he has to walk those statements back, he doesn't actually feel internally that his opinion has changed. He just doesn't want to create any social drama. So he'll create some you know, platitude to placate you know, placate some, some physicians and clinicians that are upset. But, you know, a lot of them really do have good intentions to improve care, but a lot of them really do truly want to replace clinicians. And the reason they want to do that is they want to change healthcare from a service to a good. If it's a good, it can be commoditized. It can be easily quantitated, transmitted, and sold, and you can have a lower price point. Um, and that's a whole separate discussion of, you know, is that a worthy goal or not? And I think that's their aim because that's what they've done for every other industry, you know? Um, so I think that their goal would be ultimately, look, no one really goes into the bank all that much anymore. We don't need that many bank tellers. The vast majority of banking is digital now. In fact, you don't even call it digital banking. It's just banking, right? Medicine is still called digital medicine or digital health because that gap has still not closed yet. But I think they kind of want a lot of clinicians to be bank tellers. Like, yeah, it's going to suck that a lot of them are going to be out of the business. But I think we could all agree that that was dead time waiting in line to deposit a check every time you got paid, right? That that doesn't make any sense. And so I think there's this culture clash and paradigmatic clash of like how you see the world that underlies what kind of efforts you're trying to put in and back. And I feel like this is the sledgehammer that technology is acting as to all these industries that it's disrupting. Um, the most notable example is not just banking, but you know, here in my neck of the woods in Los Angeles, entertainment. I mean, Apple has more tech, more money than any of the major studios that have been around for a hundred years combined easily. They could buy all of them if they wanted. It would just be the FTC that would stop them. They're all living, these uh, Hollywood CEOs living in fear uh, with what these major tech companies are going to do. And now that Amazon and Netflix and Apple have all come in, they're all trying to partner. And it's like a massive Game of Thrones, like who's going to control attention? So this is a long-winded way of saying that like the aims of the companies and the corporate structures that own major technology will drive how that will be implemented. Part of the reason I like to work with startups is that they're not major corporate entities. And they're good people that are really motivated by a sincere desire to help others. It's fascinating to hear why founders got into healthcare when there are sometimes more lucrative potential ideas in, in other non-healthcare industries. And it's usually someone that got sick, someone that really suffered, someone that they felt close to and they were motivated to, to provide some sort of value to. And that is the assignment for me because those are the companies I think that are the future. And I want to see them succeed. And so um, that's why I kind of direct my efforts there. No, I love that. No, I think that startups, I agree with you. And I think the one thing that healthcare does is it humbles a lot of these tech, tech giants. And it has been for decades now, right? I mean, all of them have had massive public failures. And they just don't, they're trying to, they're trying to bring that beta mentalities, try, 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 try something, try something, try something, something will stick. But when you throw the human element in it, I think that out of every industry, the human element in healthcare is the highest, right? You like yeah. I was talking to somebody, brilliant guy. Uh, he's already had an exit at a previous startup, not healthcare related. He got into healthcare. And he was like, Zan, how do you guys deal with people not listening to you? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're literally trying to save their life. You're telling them all these things to do and they're not listening to you. How do you deal with this? And I'm like, dude, if you could figure that out, it would be a, you would literally win a Nobel Peace Prize, be set for life because that is yeah. what healthcare is, right? We We do a lot of work to just not... We do a lot of walking backwards in healthcare. And I think oh, yeah. these the, that's the one thing that tech doesn't understand is 
it's not a linear it's not linear it's all over the place we're going backwards forward sideways up down and then you throw emotion into it other family members into it it's not as cut and dry as you want to make it and it just will never be and i'm they're going to keep trying i know they will keep trying and then to your point of startups i agree with you a lot of them come with amazing intentions and it's usually very personal and that's the other thing with healthcare it's very personal to people and everyone is dealing with it right it's not like not everyone is going to Best Buy or everyone's using Amazon Prime. Not everyone is doing that. But all of us are using healthcare. All of us are using healthcare. And that's why it's been so hard to move things forward because we have so many cooks in the kitchen. And the other thing is we as clinicians take on all the risk, but none of the power to change it. So, of, exactly. course, so of course, we're going to stop things from happening because if you're bringing something that's dumb or it's going to make our life harder or bring us more risk and we have no power to change the rules, like you mentioned, why, what is the incentive for us to move forward when everything, every time we've moved forward, it's been 20 steps backwards. A hundred percent. And I feel like one, I think that even startups don't realize that like you need a clinician at the ground level. I feel like even with a lot of healthcare startups, they're like, let me work on the code. Let me work on product. Let me get sales and, you know, some CEO to handle sort of marketing and, and, and product market fit, which is all important. And then we'll kind of tack on the clinical element later. Doesn't work like that. You need to have it in the DNA. Now that is hard though, because you know, business, most businesses work effectively well from the great ones to the to the regular mom and pops. You have someone that can build, you have someone that can sell. Rarely is that a skill set that one person has combined. Classic example is sort of Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. Steve Jobs, obviously, this auteur, this wonderful maestro of, you know, business and, and human psychology and created, you know, Apple. And then Steve Wozniak was obviously a technical genius, but, you know, couldn't couldn't talk to his own mother, probably. Like, I mean, gotten better now. But, like, they worked really well together, and that was a duo. And I feel like in healthcare, you need a third person. You need business. You need sales, building and selling. But then you need the, the clinical element. And so to get three, three different skill sets usually requires three different stakeholders. And as we've discussed, they're not always aligned. That's part of the problem in healthcare. So to get them all to work together, very difficult. And I've worked with you know more mature digital health companies as well as startups. And this ends up being an issue is like the culture clash. Clinicians tend to be conservative with a lowercase c in terms of, you know, you know, risk averse was, which is intended. You don't want a freewheeling pharmacist and clinician taking care of you. You want someone that's going to triple check everything and is always like very data driven in terms of like, okay, what can we do? But, you know, uh, digital companies like to move fast, you know, Peter Thiel, like, what can I do in six months that most people would think would take 10 years? And I think these kind of mentalities at a core level are so different that it takes a lot of delicate diplomacy to thread that middle ground. And up until recently, I don't know how many companies in this sector that we're both interested in have been able to effectively maintain that balance for the long term. You know, because, you know, as you said, with the comment of that colleague of yours that said, like, we're trying to help these people, they don't listen. Well, there could be a lot of reasons why patients are, are not adherent. You know, both good and bad, uh, both internal to them and external to them. But that that is the reality of things, and that requires a sort of sort of skill sets that often we aren't seeing in digital health. And so it ends up being that even their wonderful products don't get the kind of traction that they're looking for. And so I think these are the things that have to be sort of navigated and worked out. Innovating in healthcare dramatically different than innovating you know, in the, in the business space. Like I, I think of Venmo, for example, for people that don't know Venmo, Zelle, these are all these immediate cash transfer services on, on an app format. You know, Venmo emerged from a very simple problem from what I heard. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but, you know, basically people were trying to split bills from a group restaurant meal, right? And we've all been there. You have a meal at a restaurant and you know, you all throw your credit cards down and the waiter's got to, which he's got to split six bills and six tips. And so sometimes, you know, you I covered the cab and then you got the drinks and this or that. And, you know, you're trying to text someone later, trying to get the money back and they didn't pay back the 40 bucks. It's been four months. What happened? 
So there was a really immediate problem that is very down to earth. And then some guy or, or team um, was like, look, let's just link up our accounts. We do everything by text messages anyway. So let's just do a text message based cash system that's, that's like legit. That was Venmo. That was a very simple problem with none of the larger problems that we just identified in healthcare. So innovation was simple and it took off like gangbusters. The biggest problem with Venmo wasn't the tech. It was convincing culturally people that this is a safe way to transfer money. And if you're under a certain generation, you were willing to give that trust because you've seen writ large with Ubers and Postmates and you know Amazon delivery, like technology largely is going to be in your failure and they're willing to risk a little level of you know, potential data breaches, you know, breaches, broaches for, for their, uh, their benefit. That's not the healthcare problem though. The problem in healthcare is dramatically more complicated. There are way more stakeholders. Things are not nearly as aligned and the risk to patients, if things don't go well, dramatically worse than someone just not getting coverage back for their share of like, wings and beers at the local gastropub. So I feel like these unique elements of it mandate that you need to have a clinician that can speak the language of digital health and business, but knows how to talk to patients. And that ends up making it very difficult. So we talked about like product, but the teams behind these products, in addition to the incentives that we mentioned, all very important for success. I think that is still being worked out. I think we're in that sort of second phase of this. No, and I agree. And I think that there is, um, that's one of the reasons why I left clinical medicine was because I was like, I can't fix it from within. And it could be just a fault of my own, right? Like I just wasn't able to, I just didn't have the whatever fortitude or just stick with it. And I was like, I, I want to fix it from the outside in, go and like, you know, now I'm a product manager at a company. But I was like, hey, I need to fix it from the, I need to bring the clinical eye into these products that are being, that clinicians are using. And I think a lot more clinicians are starting to realize that. I mean, you probably know more than me, but like I, I talked to a lot of young, like pharmacists, doctors or whatever, and they're really interested in digital health. They're like, hey, how do I get involved? I get asked all the time, how do you get involved with startups? How do you, how do I get involved with this? How, you know, I had a startup way back in the day, <laughs> uh, burned out in a fiery fury, but I loved it. It was great. Uh, but you know, I get asked all the time, like, how did you do this? What do you do? What, how do you get to, how do you, and I, and to me, that's really exciting. And I, for me, I think that gone are the days where being in healthcare is just you, the only way we can help is physically in front of the patient in the interview. I think for me, we can help in a lot of different ways. One of them is digital. One of them is in administration. I think that a lot more physicians, doctor, whoever, clinicians are seeing that, hey, we need to go up into administration, right? Because they're sick and tired of it. And I think to me, it's been nice to see the younger group. And I know you have a lot of, when you were in academic medicine, maybe now you trained a lot of younger professionals. Did you see the same thing? Oh yeah. I mean, for those that don't know, I, I mean, I, I've done career professional guidance and counseling and coaching for years now for people. And I, I became kind of well-known in my neck of the woods because I struggled with trying to craft my career and I was dealing with the same issues as you like do I change it within the system do I go out I had my own burnout flame out story <laughs> when I tried to revolutionize things within the system and I learned the hard way a massive face plant um, because the system is very resistant to that so I, I get this question all the time from med students to fellows to other attendings even even senior attendings they're like you know I hearing about this and I had the privilege to be able to work with really fascinating startups and, and kind of try some non-traditional things beyond patient care. This, this is probably by far the number one question I get outside of immediate clinicals. And I'll give you a couple examples. Number one, it got to the point where I actually have started my own private sort of physician coaching company for physicians that actually want to do, um, you know, non-traditional things with their career because they're so excited about what the future holds and they're they know that I'm kind of in this space because and this was not intended I had no interest in doing this but there, there was such a desire for this I was like let me help people you know that capacity I remember once a few years ago 
uh, applicants are applying for GI fellowship. So for those that don't know, fellowship is sort of the second stage after extensive residency, which is the first stage after medical school. And they are applying to be specialists, in this case, gastroenterologists, people who deal with digestive diseases. And this was at the, the prior institution that I was an academic attending at. And, you know, like a number of them had Googled me as a good applicant would prior to an interview. And I wasn't there for the interviews. I was like working or seeing patients. And I thought, Dr. Modi does like all this digital health stuff. We're so excited. And like so many of the interviewers apparently got like recurrent questions about that. Like, I want to work with Dr. Modi. I want to get on digital health. This is so exciting. And they all relayed that to me. And I was like, this is great. I mean, I wish we had more spots here for all of you. And I wish I had more grant funding so I could take time away to sort of help you guys. And so I thought that they're responding to what you just pointed out. They're not responding to me. I'm really not that great. It's like they're excited about the future and they're so frustrated with how care is delivered. And just for the people who are non-clinicians, like clinicians get it. We know the system is not working even remotely like a logical system would. It's not us. Okay, we're not the reason that this is the problem here. We we don't have the keys to the kingdom. You know, there's a lot of stakeholders that we can identify that are definitely benefiting quite a bit from the way things are currently. And so whenever any opportunity emerges from the hinterland, whatever to be dramatic, that gives people, clinicians, an opportunity to flex other muscles and think creatively, so many of them just are dying to do that. Right. They'll do it for free even sometimes. So, you know, I think that there is an untapped source of dramatic potential for social and technological and cultural revolution in healthcare and, and really in a lot of related fields. It just hasn't been unleashed yet because we don't have the right channel. So that's why, you know, honestly, shows like yours are so important because I think one clinicians need to get exposed to some of the specifics. They need to hear from the thought leaders. They need to get insights on like, how does this actually work? That's hugely important to create that kind of curation, that curator effect that I think you offer in addition to sort of your own hot takes on things that then offers the mentality for people to think broadly beyond, oh, I'm just going to not just, but I'm going to be patient, but I, I can do these other things. Once that shift has been made, you get a lot of enthusiasm and it's, that trickle is starting to come into sort of a more open flow. And I think it's exciting to see that. And so I definitely think that there is a, I mean, if someone wants to start a company now who's listening, like there is absolutely a company to be made that matches clinicians and other service specific, field specific experts and professionals with the product side of digital innovation. You know, and that there are a couple of websites that have tried to do that with varying success. They haven't really taken off in healthcare, but that is, you know, like, I, I think of like founders meet or is it co-founders, whatever that company is that tries to get people who want to start companies together and like Tinder for, you know, startups. Like there, there absolutely could be something like that for this kind of particular problem because there's so many clinicians of every specialty um, that are interested, driving, you know, charming the bit to thrive in this sort of environment. I agree with you. I think that there's so much, un I there's so much untapped potential in the clinical world with all the clinical workers. There's so there's so much ingenuity that happens because people really don't realize how much we have to think outside the box. Even though we're trained to think inside the box, we have to think so much outside the box all the time, traversing all these issues and creating these unique workarounds uh, to just help people. And yeah. it gets really taxing. And that's and and we see these problems every single day and. I think one of the problems is clinicians don't know how to reach out to startups and vice versa. Startups don't know how to reach out to clinicians, right? And I love your idea. Maybe there should be like a Tinder for startups and uh, clinicians. Uh, there are a couple of things out there, but I've used them and they've, eh, they've been okay. Um, I think it's more like it's, they, I think the difference between what you're talking about with the, what exists right now is what exists right now, I think is more like a transactional, like, Hey, we'll take two, an hour, two hours of your time, help us out. But what you're saying is like, Hey, we need to build, a foundation yeah. from the ground up and really get two people that feel the same thing and want to solve the same thing and start something and grow it, grow it from the seed. Yeah. I mean, I think companies to a large extent live or die based on the DNA at the heart of their company. Kind of mixing medical metaphors there. But, um, and I think that fat fusion 
hasn't occurred yet because you have these issues that we just identified. But once that company emerges, we're at its core, there is like deep empathy for the patient, clinical expertise, and fabulous product market fit and, and insightful business design, like at the root of it, you're gonna you're gonna see something work like gangbusters. And I think that that is the hope that we are all looking for. Like you know, you we were referencing earlier, like hospital at home and all these other buzzwords, value-based care. And the reason these haven't taken off is for some of these dysfunctional incentives or conflicting incentives. That is the hope that a lot of people have that digital health could break through it if it creates that sort of unique offering that has yet to emerge that can kind of bring together a new way of, of synergistic collaboration. And I think that's what we're all hoping for. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think if I can read you and, and guess for a lot of your audience, I think we're like skeptical optimists, you know, about technology, like in terms of technological innovation, like I am deeply hopeful that it can work, but I want to see the evidence that I'm not going to rely on hope as a strategy, but there is obviously that, desire to see more, you know, and I feel like that is what we need. We need that meeting of the minds here. I'm surprised more of it hasn't occurred yet. And I think it's for the reasons that you mentioned, like these professional classes walk, walk in different circles. They have slightly different friends. You know, when I was in med school, there wasn't a whole lot of collaboration of any with the business school or people who had business training um, that just didn't exist. Now an MD, MBA, MD, computer science degree, that's, that's not unheard of. It's still quite rare. But if you go to your local university medical center, there isn't a buzz hive activity of a lot of, you know, coding experts or people in the tech side of things. And if you go in to where, you know, CS 101 is breaking and all those undergrads are leaving and you have, you know, a lot of venture capitals wearing Patagonia half sweaters, you know, half us. There's not a lot of healthcare people there too, right? We just roll in different groups. Once we get people together, I think you're going to see something. I agree. And that's kind of my goal with this podcast and even my newsletter is I just wanted to bridge the gap between the two because I have a very rudimentary, rudimentary understanding of both. I'm not a genius by any stretch of the imagination. I just know enough to be a little dangerous. <laughs> I just say that much. But I mean, I think that because I've talked to both sides and both sides want to help each other. And I think that's one thing that is really, that, that, that gave me hope, right? When I was talking to technologists, they're like, hey, we want to help you guys. We just don't know how to, but we're just trying things because this is what we think it is, right? We would love to have somebody on board that's willing to take the risk and just jump in and into our startup. I mean, that's another thing, right? Like we are very risk averse as clinicians. And, you know, I think the younger generation is starting to be less and less, but, you know, and I think that that's, well, you're exactly right. Like we need to break those, barriers and just bring everyone together in a room or the right people in the room together. Right. And then just talk. And the majority of us will agree on majority of the things. It's just, how do we get there is where you need each other. And we, and I, and I truly believe that true innovation in healthcare will come from one of those groups that meet together and be like, Hey, this is how we fix. I don't think Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft are going to bring true innovation. They'll buy out that company that's bringing yeah. true innovation. But I think the true innovation is going to come from like these smaller startups that are going to see something and they're going to come together, bring the, bring the meaning of the minds in a perfect way. And it's going to really change and really disrupt healthcare. I mean, I think, I think I agree with most of what you would say. I mean, I think a lot of the innovation is going to come from people that have nothing to lose so they can take large positions on a new innovation that has yet to really be proven yet. Apple can't do that because they have a lot more to lose, but they have more resources. So if rumors are to be, you know, eventually played out as being true, I mean, they apparently are developing in the final stages, a way of a non-invasive blood sugar monitoring that doesn't require a pinprick that would be attached to their Apple watch, which, you know, uses various spectroscopic, you know, light rays to be able to measure heart rate and stuff like that. And now we could argue like how accurate is the Apple watch and stuff, but it's accurate enough that heart rate, some arrhythmias, you know, irregular heartbeats can be measured. I think that they're eventually going to have a rudimentary form of a pulse ox. I think their latest version does. Like, it's become a fairly adept intro-level medical device, although they pitch it as a health device for fitness more than that. 
granted it's not tremendously useful for people who are truly sick but for the people who are like running and stuff but you play this out over time they they could definitely develop it into a lot more and if they actually do have this blood sugar device measurement that's reasonably accurate maybe not for like a florid diabetic but someone that you know for whatever reason wants to just get a, a reasonable estimate of what their blood sugar is without a skin prick that would be huge that would be a game changer and that would be an example of you know, I think a major company innovating. I don't know if they did that in-house or they bought a company. I was always wondering why they never bought Dexcom. For those that don't know, that's a company that probably makes the most popular or one of the most popular forms of, you know, skin prick devices that measures blood sugar for people who have, like, type 1 diabetics. They can then obviously give themselves a proper amount of insulin, control their carbs. And that just seemed like a natural fit because there have been companies that have developed smartphone apps that would get the readout and help you think all this and I thought, hey, Apple would clearly benefit from that more than any other tech company, but it seems like this was their play. But yeah, I think largely speaking, you're right. Most of the innovation is gonna be from these smaller players. Then they get an exit with one of these major companies and there you go. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, yeah, no, the Apple Watch is gonna be interesting to see. I'm excited about it. Um, I think people are like so caught up in, like you mentioned, it's not for, you're not giving insulin to yourself based on that, but it, you know, if you're eating something and you see a sugar spike on your watch, it's gonna be like, Hey, maybe I shouldn't be eating this, or maybe I should eat less of this and trends. Like from a clinician's point of view, you can see trends, right? Is your diet, you know, we don't have to really get too much in, but it's, it's good. I'm really excited about them, but yeah, you're right. That's, that's for sure. True. But I do want to touch into some of the public health stuff while we have a little bit of time left because, um, yeah. you know, health equity, those determinants of health, all that stuff gets thrown around. I don't think people really understand what it means, but like to you, what is true? What is health equity? Like, what is truly health equity? I'll give you an example. One of my sort of um, intellectual heroes in, in medicine who recently passed away, I think a year ago, uh, Paul Farmer, who, for those that don't know, is a giant in public health, was clearly probably shortlisted for the Nobel Prize in either peace and or medicine up at Harvard, Standard Partners in Health, which is a well-known, well world-famous health advocacy global health firm that worked in countries like Haiti, Puerto Rico, uh, giving initially TB medications for the poorest of the poor, hand to, hand to mouth, village to village, and it became a powerhouse for, you know, collating and catalyzing the world's imagination that we can serve the world's poorest of the poor and prevent communicable diseases like malaria, TB, HIV from decimating the third world. And he said something once that has struck with me. You know, the, the, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said it way more eloquently than I could. The biggest problem with the world is that, you know, at the root of it, some people are worth more than others. And I feel that is the problem that equity is trying to solve. So when People are like, what is all this health equity? What is this all DEI stuff, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion? What is that trying to get at? It's because if you're a particular community member, you know, unfortunately, on a certain level, you don't count as much. That's just the unfortunate reality of things. And in the industry of healthcare, how we take care of each other, which arguably is the most central act of being a person, is taking care of each other, right? Every world, religion, and philosophy, no matter what your background or artistic, you know, reference in, in literature and art has, has cited this central tenet in some format is like, we have some obligation to each other. And I think that people who are in healthcare in some, some capacity, and really, as you argued very, very insightfully, we're all in healthcare, whether you're a professional or not, we all have a touchstone and a touch point in this industry because of the human condition. This, this matters to all of us. We're, we're a certain unique breed of people Like we want to dedicate our lives to this. And so it hurts us on a core level when we see certain groups and we can debate which groups those are and, and for what reason, suffering outcomes that are just in many cases preventable or could be remedied or mitigated. And so health equity is the attempt to level that playing field, not to make everything exactly the same. It's not to make a pure equivalency or or anything like that, but it's to recognize that we should all count for the same amount, for the same amount of respect and 
human dignity, and that should be reflected in our economics and our public healthcare system and our healthcare delivery workflows. And that isn't, you know, in my field of GI, we see all kinds of problems. Colon cancer screening rates, notably worse for the most part for people who are African-American or of Hispanic descent. Their outcomes for chemotherapy in case they have, and, and surgery if they have cancer, much worse. Now everyone's screened at the age of 45, but for years, African-Americans are screened five years earlier before the rest of the public. It used to be 50 was the big, right? The big 5-0 was my colonoscopy uh, because we knew that they were suffering disproportionately more, even though that, you know, they're, I don't know what, 12% of the, I think, U.S. population. I don't know what the exact numbers are. So I think that's what health equity is like. Can we fix that problem? And I think we have a long ways to go, but I do think that, Fortunately, we're starting to see this in the lexicon of the discussions that are occurring, whether it's on this show and other forums, like this wasn't even on the radar up until recently. And so I think that's a very heartening change. It is only step one. And the skeptic in me to a certain degree is like, is this just a buzzword that companies and other entities are using to kind of wash themselves and that sort of social justice imprimatur, that kind of that sheen that's going to buff up their resume and their reputation or is this something that has legs and I, I i don't know yet i agree with you and i think that people that have worked in healthcare even for a little bit see these inequities all the time and the one thing that scares me not scares me but the one thing that to your point i think people use the word health equity we're bringing equity to it to with our solution i don't think people to me it's like okay great you're working at it but where are you deploying these solutions it's always in upper middle class areas where you know academic institutions all these things and it could i mean i'm not saying that that was their goal right i mean that's where the money is that's where all these things is but are we really being equitable with our solutions like are we really you know that that's what i get frustrated with is you're saying you're building a health equity but are you really doing that or are you just saying it and i'm not and i know it's like a much bigger issue right like there's a money issue all that stuff and it's hard but healthcare is hard guys like it's not easy. If it was so easy, it would all be fixed already. It's supposed to be hard. And it's not so sorry. It's, it's not supposed to be hard, but it is hard. And that's the one thing that I get frustrated with. I don't really know how to how to handle it sometimes. Like I I like to see the good in people, but I also have been so jaded over time just working in healthcare that I'm kind of like, uh, are you really doing this for the right reasons, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I often tell people, like, people ask you, like, what can I do to be healthy? And I mean, I say, look, there's obviously the, you know, the standard advice, which is important, eat well, to get some movement, de-stress, connect with family, get some sleep, hydrate. But, you know, the answer I often really give people is, like, if you really want to be healthy, the population data is very clear in healthcare. Be wealthy. If you have wealth and have resources, you can overcome a fair number, if not most of these intractable social inequities because you have leverage, because you become necessary, because you can get access, you have resources. Wealth on a high level, not necessarily for any individual patient, but a high level is the most correlated factor in population studies to health outcomes, right? And so when we talk about like, health equity in name versus in reality only. Part of the gap is that, you know, we were talking about social determinants of healthcare, I think previously as well, I referenced it offline. Like, how do you get equity in reality? Like, you got to get patients in those communities wealth, right? We can talk all day about how important it is to fix this problem. And I think truly, in the heart of hearts, people are generally, on this particular topic, motivated by good reasons. But when it comes to the things that actually determines how the world is, and this is like a very high-level discussion now, it's money, it's power, it's access, it's status, leverage, as we've talked about earlier, which historically physicians have some of, but not a lot. And certain communities have been deleveraged through oppression, through a variety of other things, and they are unable to transverse and transform that gap. And so when we can have these policies, they're important and they should be implemented, but it is sort of like, there's only so much that this can be effective in this scenario. We, we need these big rocks to be changed. And that's obviously a very different discussion. Like how do we generate social mobility and, and uplift communities? Health is intrinsic part of that. That's kind of my philosophy, like of deep health. 
all political and social policy really is about ultimately the health of people and communities. But it's intrinsically tied to the things that we mentioned is access to technology, access to wealth, resources, connection to social networks, all these things that have been disparaged and distraught and destroyed and denigrated in certain communities that has caused these entrenched problems. How do we fix that? I don't know. But we start by having conversations like this. We start by making equity an explicit goal of the innovations that we're trying to achieve. And I think in digital health, it's a real problem. I mean, I remember, I mean, in my former academic institution, I worked at a major county hospital, the second largest you know, county hospital in the country, Los Angeles County Medical Center, in addition to working in my private academic clinic and I was working on digital health solutions. It's very difficult to innovate for like a county population, working poor, many of them take public transportation just to get to your appointments, multiple generations living in cramped quarters in a house, some of them potentially undocumented, poor health literacy, multiple health comorbidities, right? Very difficult diabetic retinopathy, can't see the smartphone effectively and this and that, and becomes very hard to move the needle on those populations with technology. And yet those would be the populations, those would be the people that we would want to help perhaps the most because they're suffering the most, right? Not trying to take away resources from anyone else, but like they need attention. And it became very challenging. Like, how do we fix this problem? Like, just being able to use a smartphone or text, like, that sounds easy to you or I. That's like nothing. But, oh, if you've got Parkinson's or if you don't speak the language or if your eyes are poor, that becomes really hard. You can't suddenly interact with almost any technology that has become de facto the way the world works now. And so there becomes sort of major constraints. But what I tell people on a hopeful note, constraints can induce creativity. You mentioned it earlier, like clinicians have become very effective, you know, thinking outside the box as they're in the box, just to be able to get their job done. It gets exhausting after a while, but a lot of clinicians, pharmacists, we're all trying to sort of hack our way around certain things. You spend any time in any clinic or pharmacy, everyone has, oh, that computer doesn't work or this thing doesn't do, you got to do it this way and you send this form and you do the blah, 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 and that gets you what you need to do. Like all this sort of unstructured information that has deep expertise and professional that you'll never find on Google. So anyone who thinks you're going to replace healthcare workers, you know, with this software, you know, think twice. That's the kind of stuff that needs to be developed for populations that are in difficult, dire circumstances. And I think that that's the challenge for digital health because you're not going to innovate initially in that population. They don't have resources. They don't have wealth. You're not going to get venture capital funding for that. You got to start with your wealthier, tech-savvy, digital nomad, affluent populations that, you know, are less sick, frankly, you know, work there. And then you can kind of expand outward. I mean, most companies have done that. I mean, you have the city blocks of the world, which are great companies that are directly working at these populations, but it becomes hard. So th those are some of the challenges of like, how do we bridge public health with digital health. Um, and, you know, we can go into another podcast episode about COVID and all the other factors that, you know, led to the emergence of those two intersections. But I think health equity has to be taken seriously. And I'll tell you as a last point before I, because I'm sucking up all the air on the show, um, is I think here's the secret fear is that as technology, capitalism, not, I'm not anti-capitalist, but as capitalistic change, social change, technological change, all these things occur. And I think that America is both very sclerotic and, and inertial in terms of its institutions, and yet it's also rapidly changing at the same time, this sort of weird dichotomy. I think the secret fear when it comes to health equity is that more and more people are going to be swept up and included in those disenfranchised populations, even if they were not historically considered that way. And that secret fear, I think, is part of the reason that with healthcare, the stakes are so much higher. I mean, there was an example here in Los Angeles. It's like award season right now. So every restaurant and city street is like literally decked out with parties and blocked off for all these film awards. The Oscars are coming up and blah, blah, blah. A number of actors have talked about it. They've gone on record talking about, I'm so glad that this movie did well, especially these independent films get health insurance. A lot of them were about to lose their health insurance. Uh, Barbara Streisand did an interview just recently, who she's worth millions and billions of dollars. 
She's like, I'm so grateful that I could still get health insurance from my husband. There's like the major actors organization here. I'm like, people care about this stuff. This is really important. So when we have populations that are being swept away on the downside of advantage, that becomes deeply, deeply troubling. And we all fear, I think, on some level, that tide is going to sweep up more and more of us. And we're starting to see it now with all the debates over pharmaceutical prices. And I mean, you're a chemotherapeutic oncologist, right? You mean, you know, in, in the pharmaceutical world, I mean, there are chemotherapeutic cycles that would bankrupt someone if they had to pay out of pocket, right? Like, I mean, a, for most chemotherapy, it's like $100,000 for, you know, for advanced cancer immunotherapy. Like, I mean, get, who has that in their bank account? So, and, and pharmaceutical companies, this is, you know, have gone largely unchecked. I mean, that's starting to change. So I think health equity, frankly, let's be real, is not just for those people that are unfortunately and tragically downtrodden. If in only self-interest, we all got to take this seriously because it will largely start spreading. And so I think that we need people like you that care about this. We need people who can speak the language of digital health, which is a powerful force potentially for good to rectify some of these things and even this playing field so all people can stay healthy. I mean, that's really my goal is to keep people healthy, get them the opportunities that they deserve to stay healthy so they can live their lives. I mean, that gives me a lot of concern. 100%. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't have anything to add to you. And I think that, I think that more people need to talk about their fears out loud because I think sometimes I'll say something and I'm sure you've had this too, like, just because you love something doesn't mean you, you can't criticize it, right? Like, exactly. I love technology. I love technology. I love medicine. I love all these things. And the criticism comes from a place of love and understanding. You know, kind of like our parents, right? They love us, but they're going to tell us until, I mean, we could be 40, 50 years old. They're going to keep telling us the same things. and just, Because they love I us. I have right? parents, so believe me. <laughs> yeah. <No>, every day. <laughs> yep, South Asians, man. We, we, but, yeah. you know, but that's the thing, right? Like you mentioned. We need to be aware of all these issues because we need to mitigate for them from the beginning. We can't mitigate for them later on because at that point it'll be too late and it'll be gone. And the people, and it's just, and it's something that we just need to talk about. And I think and I'm glad you brought these things up. And I'm, I, we definitely, need, I would love to do another episode, which is talking about this topic because it's such a massive oh, please, topic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, with the last little minute, like what, uh, I have one more question and then also how people can reach you. But like what, what advice would you give to yourself when you were coming out of med school? And then how can people, what is the best place for people to reach out to you? I would have given myself a tremendous amount of advice, but I think uh, for that, that would be like a three hour podcast. <laughs> um, you know, I think in terms of like the concepts and the ideas that we've referenced here, I, I would say a couple of things. I would say, number one, this is kind of personal, but like bet on yourself, you know, as, I'm a deeply self-doubtful person and I've definitely done some work on that to kind of improve, but you got to bet on yourself. That mentality over the long term will be a play that will eventually net you closer friends, more fulfilling relationships, and also better outcomes for you professionally, for me professionally and for, for my patients. And I think that Self-doubt to a certain degree is kind of the the code of ethics for an internist, right? Where the where the we double check. I mean, what about this? What about that? I don't know. Like you kind of want that, but I would have told myself that. Number two, I would have said that look into digital health sooner. Realize that there are other ways to serve patients in addition to clinical work, and that that is going to be something you're going to want to pursue to get leverage. Once you have leverage to be able to enact outcomes disproportionate to your efforts, when you have a decoupling of inputs and outputs, you are suddenly able to really move the world in a certain way. Part of the reason the world is the way it is isn't because it's just corporate greed or people with big mustaches twirling them in some private room as they smoke. I mean, there are those people, but it's partly because most of us or just deleverage because we're just trying to get by every day. There's nothing wrong with that. There's honorable work in that. But for people that are really trying to change things, to save the world, to improve the world, you need leverage. And there are people that are trying to own the world. There's a very different mentality in a lot of professional classes. I'm not trying to denigrate them, but they don't necessarily have the ethics that we have in the spirit of the work that we're trying to do. So I would have said, bet on myself. But get leverage, learn about technology, learn about the different ways, 
in which the world works, get a footprint into that, use that to serve the patients you're trying to help. Uh, I was a pure academic clinician, and I think that I was a little bit naive about how influence, energy, attention, money, currency, and all of that works and revolves and spreads. And I think that it cost me some opportunities and it probably meant that I wasn't as effective as I would have liked to have been when it came to helping people that I wanted to help. Yeah, no, I definitely, I mean, I think that's why we connect really well. I think both of us have had similar journeys in our path and I agree with you hundred percent, but, uh, for those who, if those who want to reach out to you, what is the best way of doing that? Yeah, I mean, um, I have all my social medias. It's usually my name, Rushimodi or, or Dr. Rushimodi. I have LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Um, quick plug for for my podcast, which you were gracious enough to to guest on the Alchemy of Politics. Really having conversations like this with social innovators, I feel like the world is filled with people such as yourself and others that are you know, diamonds in the rough, people who are really trying to change things. And I feel like the, the mainstream media gets a lot of negative press, but one thing that they don't do is highlight people that really have innovative ideas that are potentially game changers, right? Things that could really make a difference in all areas of life. And I want to talk to those people. I want to connect and learn from those people. So my podcast is about having these kinds of discussions, talking with motivated people, but like how we can move the needle on the problems that really affect all of us, healthcare, social change, climate change, et cetera. There's a deep health focus, as I mentioned, because obviously my background, our shared interests. So that's kind of like the area that's, you know, probably the most fruitful way to connect with me is to listen to the show, if you'd be so kind. I have an email there, our website, alchemyandpolitics.com. And then for those that are interested in working with me, you know, my consulting business, I do consult with digital health companies and I, I'm taking a minority of private physician clients who want to get into the digital health space and craft different careers because I've had a lot of people approach me about coaching. And so, you know, for those that are interested in that, uh, my other website's manifestdoctor.com slash home for, for my manifest MD consulting. So those are the two websites that you can reach me at. Yeah, no, the podcast is amazing. You definitely need to listen to it. And if you are even remotely thinking about digital health, definitely reach out to him. If you have, I mean, throughout this whole thing, you've been so insightful. I doubt anyone after this will not want to reach out to you. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you are doing great work. And I'm glad to see, um, you know, people like you really pushing others to do good. Thank you. This has been great. I, you're a fantastic host. Yes, really insightful questions. And you know, I, I learned as much as, you know, as I hopefully provided here. These episodes are really great. And for all those listening, please continuing to listen to this podcast. I mean, digital thoughts is fantastic. It really is. I really appreciate that a lot. Thank you so much.